2012. Molly Hughes is making her first climb up Mount Everest in the Himalayas. She's just 21 years old and suddenly she starts feeling ill. Like, I was super aware I'd hardly drunk anything for for the whole time we were up there. I'd hardly eaten anything. And I was aware we'd be in the death zone for going on about 14 hours now. The death zone. A name's not given lightly. That's what they call it when you get to above 8,000 metres on Everest. Up there, there isn't enough oxygen for humans to breathe. Most of the climbers who have died on the mountain, and we're talking like 100 climbers over the past 30 years, have died in the death zone. And Molly's now in this spot. She's on her way down, and there are all these other climbers coming up the mountain. A bit where you have to like pin yourself against the wall a little bit, because people are coming over the main crux of the climb. And we were stuck on one side of it, and people were climbing up over it. And it probably took them, yeah, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes to get over this one big boulder. Like, everything is so, so slow. I was feeling pretty weak, but then I guess I started to feel really, really ill. Um, and I remember, like, tapping Lapra on the shoulder. Lapra was one of Molly's Sherpa guides. And just being like, Lapra, I think, I think my oxygen might have run out. And he checks the gauge on the canister in my rucksack, and I, I remember just seeing this kind of panic flick across his face. And I just thought, oh shit, my oxygen really has run out. From Red Bull, this is How to Be Superhuman. I'm Rob Pope. On this week's episode, it's the youngest woman to have scaled Mount Everest twice. The first time, back in 2012, when she was just 21, by the easier south route. I say easier, with an eyebrow raised in the style of James Bond. There are no easy rides on Everest. But when she went back in 2017, she went along the devilishly difficult north face. Like, so this is such a, you know, an, an astounding thing. You know, people talk about Everest being, you know, the pinnacle of things. And you, well, you've literally been there. Where, where, like, have you got this in your blood, you know, sort of, are you related to, to Sir Edmund um, Hillary, you know? Yeah, no, I wish. No? Um, <laughs> so not really, because I grew up in Devon, like right on the south coast of Devon, like probably as far from any mountains as you can get in the UK. Um, so I didn't really climb my first, like, proper mountain until I was 17. That was Mount Kenya. And I just completely loved it. And I loved that experience of altitude and the feeling that it has on your body. Like it wasn't that high. Well, it was pretty high. Like you get to like nearly 5,000 meters. And that feeling on your body, I just really enjoyed it. It's hard and you push through every single day. But it's amazing to be up there and be amongst the clouds and looking down and everything. So yeah, that just completely gave me the bug for climbing more and more. You're at like sort of school in Devon. And then suddenly, you know, you're thinking, hey, maybe I'd like to do something more. So. It sounds a bit of a silly question, but why Everest? Isn't that just just a bit scary? <laughs> so I never really imagined I could do Everest until I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And like between that time of Kenya and that age, I'd be climbing as much as I can around the world, all over different mountain ranges. Um, but when I was 20, I decided to write my dissertation mm-hmm. about the psychology of climbing Everest. Because I was in Bristol studying psychology. Um, I wanted like a really interesting topic, so I'd actually kind of sit down and write it and not just kind of go out every night or go off and do sport or whatever I was doing. So I started this project and just started interviewing and getting to know guys who'd summited Everest. Mm-hmm. And I found seven of them and I sat down and I like explored their motivation, their own abilities to control fear, 
psychological pressure that you face down at base camp, which is pretty huge. Like when you're sat down there looking up at this massive mountain, it's, it's intimidating. So listening to their stories, that was when that kind of spark kind of flicked. And I thought, you know, I don't want to just sit here and talk about it and write about it. I want to go and see it for myself. And then just at one point, I was sat on this high chair. I was a lifeguard at uni, <laughs> looking out over the swimming pool, sat in this high chair. And when you're lifeguarding, I'm sure if anyone's listening that has done it, it like sounds good and it sounds exciting, but it's like the most boring job in the world. You just sit there for hours staring at a swimming pool, trying to stay awake. And it's quite a good time to think. And I just really had this amazing feeling that I could do this. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it was kind of so out of character for me because I was pretty shy and pretty yeah. reserved at uni. So the idea of doing it was just pretty out there. But as soon as it happened, I knew that I wanted to do it. And deep down, kind of somewhere in my psyche, somewhere I knew that it was going to happen. I yeah. just had to put all the things in place to get there. So from that point, you know, you'd already climbed Mount Kenya, but like sort of from what you've you've done now, you now realise that's basically a hard trek. Uh, so what sort of other experience did you have? Like were you a climber before? You know, I used to do a little bit of soloing and then I sort of had a nasty fall once and sort of I decided <laughs> I would keep my feet firmly planted yeah. on the ground. So how did you acquire the skills you needed? Um, so a lot of rock climbing when I was at uni mm-hmm. and a bit after that as well. And then just climbing around the world on these expeditions. So every kind of summer, I would have saved up as much money as I could in the term time from mm-hmm. lifeguarding or using my student loan. And then in the summer, in those kind of huge summer months, when you get three months off at uni, instead of like going home and working or whatever, I would just go off on an expedition. So the, my first year of uni, I went off to the Indian Himalayas, climbed mm-hmm. as much as I could there. The year after, I went back to Africa, North Africa. And that summer, I also went to South America, which was super cool, climbing the Andes. Back to the Himalayas a few times, Nepal, India, back to Africa, the Alps in Scotland, just climbing as much as I could over those kind of three or four years. But Everest was kind of like a different ballgame altogether. Mm. It is this huge, scary 8,000 meter peak and so much bigger and crazier than anything I'd, I'd done or considered before. But even still, that sounds like you were doing it the right way. I'm actually really glad for your future welfare that you seem to approach it that way because, you know, sort of, I'd have been a little bit worried if you suddenly after a night out in the beer keller in Bristol, you suddenly <laughs> found yourself in Kathmandu Airport, you know. <laughs> What happens? So you're heading into the Himalayas and what goes from there? Um, so I guess well, like you fly into, well, there's the north side and the south side, mm-hmm. basically. And I did the south side first when I was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was straight out of uni. And I did the north side just a couple of years ago when I was 26. Um, but the south side was that first big experience. Um, and you basically get into base camp after like nine, ten days of trekking. So you've already like got into the expedition quite a lot. You get to base camp and that's where you're going to be living for the next two months or so. Mm-hmm. And I guess one thing people don't really consider or understand too much about like high altitude climbing is you can't just go from base camp all the way to the summit in like one big push. Yeah. We actually spend four or five, maybe even six weeks like yo-yoing up and down the mountain just to acclimatise our body to that lack of oxygen. But it wasn't just lack of oxygen Molly was worried about. Like, one of the scariest things for me is the heights. I've always had this kind of fear of heights, um, and I think I always will. So I don't know why I've chosen this career as a mountaineer, um, but it's, it's OK. And I, I like the challenge of having to overcome that fear. Nowhere was that more of a challenge than on that first trip up Mount Everest in 2012, as she arrived at the infamous Kumbu Icefall got this kind of like maze of ice blocks to go through and some of them are probably like the size of the house or the size of like a double-decker bus 
And the whole thing is still like shifting and moving every day because it is a glacier. Just imagine what this is like. A deep crack in the glacier, 10 meters wide. The only way across it is a tiny rickety ladder balanced precariously on either side. You edge out onto it, put one foot slowly and carefully in front of the other. It's a bit like a scene from a movie, one that you don't really want to be in. One mister, you're dead. As they were scaling this glacier, they heard one of the Sherpas, the local guides who helped climbers up and down the mountain, had actually died, fallen down a crevasse. Um, so some guys managed to get down there and get him out. But as he came out, they left this kind of smear of blood up the side of the crevasse. And I can still kind of see it when I, when I think about it, this kind of bright red blood in the white snow. So controlling fear at that point was so, so important, just across that three-metre section. But because Molly was also wrestling with a fear of heights, she actually had a way of coping. Fear, it shouldn't be like a negative emotion. All it is there for is to like protect us and look after us. Um, like if there was no fear, we'd all do stupid things, wouldn't we? Like go and run across the motorway or go and like swim in shark infested water or something. But because there is this fear, it controls us and, and looks after us. Um, so trying to see fear as your friend a little bit definitely kind of helped. For Molly, this fear actually drove her. And that's how she got across the icefall and started making her way up the mountain. So you go up to Camp 1, you come back down, you spend time resting and recovering. You go all the way up to Camp 2, come back down, rest, recover. Camp 3, which on the south side is at like 7,100 metres. And when you're up there, you're halfway up the Lotsey face. You can see the summit, like you can almost touch it, it's so close. Mm. But after you get there, you come all the way back down to base camp again. And then you rest, you recover, and you wait for the weather window, for the weather to be perfect to head up there. Yeah, because I think that's a lot of people uh, things that people don't really realise, just how long it takes. Like, I didn't realise it was about all the yo-yoing, but I knew that you spent a lot of time at sort of base camp. But before you got there, you touched on how hard you train. So when you're in the UK, besides like sort of your climbing expeditions, what did you do for like general? Have you got a stairmaster in your house? You know, have you have you got a snow machine on your stairs? Uh, I live on the top floor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Um, like each expedition is different. Mm. Like with Everest, it's uh, lots of big endurance days in the hill. Um, I live up in Edinburgh, so mm. it's really easy to get onto the mountains. It's such a great place to train. I love that you can live in the middle of a city, but within a couple of hours be in this amazing kind of mountain environment. At the moment, I'm training to uh, hopefully ski solo to the South Pole. Mm-hmm. And I'm going off in November, I think, if I can raise the rest of the funding. So that is a real kind of different training and mm. mindset to anything I've done before. I am training a lot on beaches. I, I did one training run there on Formby Beach because okay. I, I was a little <laughs> bit injured. And um, yeah, I, I, I ran on it, realised it was hard. And so it's if that's really mental hard, preparation, <laughs> at least I knew what was ahead of me. You know, <laughs> Running on sand is, is so hard. But like, I do it because it, it's probably the closest you can get to representing snow and the mm-hmm. way snow gives way under you. Yeah. So it just trains all of your little muscles and your ankles and your legs and your calves just really well. So I'm doing like sprint sessions, then pulling tires for hours. And do you want a little yeah. gem of power that you can take with you to the South Absolutely. Pole? So give it it's to me, Rob. A, it's a slightly different <laughs> thing, but the most famous uh, racehorse of all time, Red Rum, won three Grand Nationals, 
did all his training on Formby Beach when he yeah. was tra- where well, yeah before he was Amazing. doing the racing. Okay. So you know, I reckon it means you can probably do the South Pole three times. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be able to as fast as him, but I can try. Yeah, it doesn't matter. There, there is no fast. There is no slow. It's yeah. do or not do. That's all it is. You got all this warm kit. You've got your training. You're acclimatized. You're ready to go. So who makes the decision to right? Let's go. Who is that? Like, do we like? So, do you have much input in that, um, or is it do you rely a, on the sherpas? And... So, for each one that I would join, uh, like a guided trip. So, mm-hmm. on the south side, I joined quite a big guided company through this guy called Kenton Cool. Yeah, he's like climbed Everest, I don't know, thirteen times now. Something crazy. Um, yeah. and it was really good. That was all pretty organised through them. On the north side, um, I did that a few years later, and we had this really small, amazing team. And I actually enjoyed it so much more because it was just me and my friend John Gupta, mm-hmm. who's an amazing mountain guide, and. Um, he guided me and looked after me really well on the mountain. And then we had our two Sherpa guides, uh, Lakpa and Leela. And Lakpa's the same guy that I actually summited with on the south side. And he came and joined us on the north side. So it's just the four of us. What a responsibility to have yeah. in just saying, like, this is now that we go now. Yeah. You know? for, and, but you get pretty good weather forecasts for mm. it now. But you've got to get the window right. And actually, both times on our summit attempt, the weather window was, like, tight. Yeah. Like, a little bit too tight. Like, on the north side... We got up to the final camp, which is at 8,300 metres. It's super high. When you're up there, you're higher than like every mountain in the world but five, mm. basically on top of the world. But that's our camp. And we get in there and we <laughs> spend a few hours there rehydrating, resting, getting ready for when night comes and we head off to the summit. Yeah. And when we were there, we were getting weather forecasts through John's dad because we didn't have any internet up there. So we'd ring him on the sat phone and he was checking the weather forecast and we were seeing how it was going to be. And there was this kind of really dodgy weather system coming in. And it was coming in about maybe 3 p.m. the next day. Mm-hmm. And we were planning on leaving at 8 p.m. that night. Yeah. So we'd have like 12, like 18 hours to get up and down again successfully. And at that point, it was such like a big decision that we all had to kind of come together and make whether we go for it. Because we don't know if this weather window is going to come in early or it's going to come in late, going to have more time. And in the end, we called it that we would go for it. Mm. And if we felt like the weather was coming in and we've got any warning signs, we'd turn around and head back down. But we just put so much into it to get to that point. Was that a unanimous decision? Absolutely, yeah. So and, and when everybody, everybody might have said yes, but did everybody? Yeah. Like, so I'd, be, I'd be like, if I was the last person, just go, what do you think, Rob? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, do okay. it. <laughs> no, it definitely was. Like the amount of effort it takes to get up to 8,300 mm. metres, get all our kit up there, and your chances of getting all the way to base camp, it would take another six or seven days resting, waiting for another window, getting all the way up again, like, your attempts will be over. So, like, you get into camp, on this on the north side, you get into camp three, um, that final camp, 8,300 metres, and we got in, we got all the weather reports, and we had about three hours more Mm. of resting and recovering, because we thought 8pm would be the best time to go. It was going to be dark, we'd hopefully get to the summit by sunrise. So you have those kind of three, four precious hours to, like, melt enough snow and ice for drinking water, rehydrate ourselves, cook food, eat as much as you can, and kind of, like psych yourself up for what lay ahead mm. like stuffing out of that tent in all of your gear into what's called the death zone mm. up onto the northeast ridge it's a it's a nice thing that's that's how to inspire yeah. confidence <laughs> with someone going up you know even if it's just like oh the really difficult zone yeah. I'd, have, I'd have preferred that you know <laughs> but the death zone it's sort of it's definitely the death zone like when you're up there mm. like physiologically your body is dying on itself and the higher you get the less available option there is and yeah your body is just kind of shutting you down On Molly's first journey up the mountain, it wasn't actually the going up that was the problem. It was the coming down. That's where we heard Molly at the beginning of this episode, running out of oxygen, trying to get back down from the summit. The problem for Molly was that on the south face of the mountain, it can get pretty crowded. 
when the weather closes in, it closes in pretty fast on Everest and you often get a race for the summit, which leads to scenes you've probably all seen in the newspapers of a long line of people snaking towards the top. Just like so many people queuing and waiting for their chance to get up and climb and head on towards the summit. And looking down on them was absolutely terrifying because we knew that we had to get down there and we had to get down there as quickly as we could. Um, But getting past them was going to be really, really hard. And we had to get down quickly because on Everest, like, it is a time game. Like, you've only got enough oxygen to survive of what you've got in your, in the canisters, like in your backpack. And when they run out, you're, you're pretty screwed. Remember, you're in the death zone. That's where people die. Humans aren't meant to survive up there. You're almost at the same height as the cruising altitude of a jumbo jet. Now Molly is waiting at this really famous point in the climb called the Hillary Step, named after Sir Edmund Hillary, the first Westerner to ever get to the summit. Waiting, waiting for this long line of climbers to come past her. And like it, it was really hard to get down past them because we kind of descended a little bit and then we got to this one section and at that point there's like two ropes. One you'd kind of think of going up and one for going down. But I remember they got like twisted up together a little bit, which meant all of these climbers on the ridge were like coming up on one rope, unclipping, clipping into our rope and carrying on past us. So there was no rope to like abseil the section at all. Um, and these climbers were just coming up, up over the step and they kept coming. Um, we must have been stuck there for like 30, 40, going on like 45 minutes. Tick tock, tick tock. Her auction's running out. She doesn't have much more time to wait. And that's when I started to feel like pretty ill. And I remember like tapping Lapra on the shoulder and just being like, Lapra, I think, I think my oxygen might have run out. And he checks the gauge on the canister in my rucksack and I, I remember just seeing this kind of panic flick across his face. And I just thought, you know, oh shit, my oxygen really has run out. And from that moment, it all went like super hazy, super fuzzy. I don't really remember much, but like somehow Lakpa managed to like stop all of those climbers coming up over that big boulder. Um, and he dragged me down this, that section of the Hillary Step. Pretty sure I slid down most of the Hillary Step on my bum. We got to the bottom of it. And I remember him like sticking me in this like snow corner, pulling out a fresh oxygen canister from his rucksack that he'd been carrying and attaching it to my mask. And within... Today, three, four minutes of breathing this fresh oxygen, I started to feel okay again. But it was so, so close. Um, and if it hadn't been for Lakpa and his expertise and his ability just to like move when he absolutely had to, like, I don't know, I think I would have been completely screwed up there. I think five people would have probably died up there that night. Molly and Lakpa eventually get down the mountain. Great success, you know, it's enough for most people. But in 2017, she decides to go back to climb Everest again, but this time up the north face, the more difficult route. We're going to join her as she reaches the death zone again, as she makes her way up from a final camp. But this time, there aren't any other climbers up there, no queues, no waiting. It's just her and her team, four people, and it's dark, pitch black. To get to the summit, basically you have to set out as darkness falls, because that gives you enough time to reach the top in the light, and then get down again before the weather catches up with you. You basically could be anywhere. Like you're surrounded by such blackness and you can't see anything and there's hardly anything to tell you you're on Everest. She's trudging up the mountain, 
one foot after another. Trudging uphill. In your own head, surrounded by darkness. Just like having your own little like personal struggle. And it really is just taking one step. Stopping catching your breath. One step, stopping catching your breath. And it quickly turned out she wasn't as alone as she thought she was. And it was still completely pitch black, so we are just like following like the beam of our head torch. And I remember at one point just kind of getting to the section and just stopping to catch my breath. And as I stopped, I looked to my left and I saw this guy. Um, and this guy, he was like facing down the slope with his arms like sprawled out in front of him. Like he was lying on his stomach. Um, and he was um, absolutely, definitely dead. A dead body stretched out in the snow. And at some point during his last few hours, he'd like lost his gloves. I could just see his hands like stretching. And this was a really strange experience for me. Um, Like, I've never seen a dead body before. So when I kind of reached him, I saw him on my left. And I must have looked at him for like half a second or less. But I took it all in. I absolutely took it all in. Everything. He looked like what he was wearing. Um, and then at that point, it really was this kind of, I don't know if it was like a fight or flight response or something, but I just knew I had to get away from him as quickly as I possibly could. Um, I literally didn't have any thoughts of like who he was. I didn't have any thoughts of where he came from, the people he loved, um, back home. All I kind of felt was this overwhelming need to get away from this person as quickly as I possibly could. Um, and I did, I started climbing and I climbed as quickly as I could away from him. When you see, obviously it's not a nice sight to see, but you're also extremely, you know, already driven to have got that point. You know that you're in trouble if you stick around, like nobody blames climbers for going past sort of, you know, it's almost, you know, sort of a, you know, a mark of respect to carry on on a journey. But was there any point of view that whether it was, I don't want to go and put myself at this kind of risk or just like, no, this isn't right. I shouldn't be walking past this guy. I'll at least try and help. And if I can't help, I'll go down. What was going through your head? I think it was, it was strange. Like when mm. you're up there and you're at such high altitude and you're so hypoxic, you've got such little oxygen in your brain, everything is different. Firstly, everything is a bit hazy, a bit dizzy. You don't make the same conscious decisions as you do down here. Yeah. And you've also completely got these like blinkers on to any sort of thing that's going to put you off what you're doing. Like it's so hard up there and it's so overwhelming. If you let all of that come in and let all of that emotion come in, you mm. never keep going and you never put the next foot in front of the other. So when I saw this guy, I remember just like looking at him for like half a second and turning away. And just getting away from him as quickly as I could, climbing yeah. up that hill as quickly as I possibly could. And that whole night, that whole summit night, I didn't let any emotion in. Mm. I don't remember like thinking of home. I don't remember thinking of my family, people I loved. I was just so focused on pushing my body and just willing it to take that next step and that next step. So um, did you ever think you couldn't take that next step? No. Mm. No. <laughs> what, what motivation sort of was it you, because like I so said, when I was really struggling, I'd draw it from everywhere. And sometimes, you know, I don't think there were many sort of uh, donut shops upon Everest, but, you know, sometimes I get excited knowing there was one 15 miles away. Um, but, you know, your motivations, of course, to reach the summit, but you said you didn't really want to think about the, 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 you know, the actual achievement of it. But now it was in sight. It was there. And so when you saw the summit, was that the only motivation you needed? Um, yeah. Like, I think... In climbing and on these big trips, 
I probably got an advantage over you because mm. I can stop and I can look around me and I can be in the most beautiful place in the whole world, like in the whole of the Himalayas. And that's all you have to do to get that motivation if you're so lucky to be there. Yeah. I can imagine running on roads across America. There were probably some times where you weren't in the most beautiful places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you find beauty in the strangest yeah. of places, you know. So <laughs> sure. I, I just I don't think there would be many sites that could compete with standing literally on the on the roof of the world. Um, talk about, you know, you got, um, you, you're t- struggling to take those steps, but you're always moving forward. How physically intensive was it? I imagine it was really, you know, we know about the cardio things because there's no oxygen, so your heart would have been going crazy. What are your, like, your legs and your arms going through it? Um, it's hard. Mm. Like, on on the north side, I was talking about the north side because it was harder and yeah. I enjoyed it more. <laughs> um, so on the north side, on that ridge line, so basically the whole summit night, you're going on the northeast ridge, and along it you've got these three rock steps to get up, which mm. are aptly named the first, second and third step. There are these huge rock sections that you've got to basically pull yourself up, climb up, climb up a metal ladder that's on the second step. And I remember getting all the way up to the third step and my arms were just like completely pumping out and I was trying to pull myself up over the third step. I was so close to the top, you could see the summit, the sun was just rising. But that kind of pain and pump out that in your arms burn, yeah, yeah absolutely and I just wish I'd like spent more time in the gym <laughs> I got some bigger biceps I want to get to the glory bit so your last few <laughs> steps you can see the summit you know it's the you know it's on your first expedition and the second mm-hmm. what were those last steps like were you in the same physical shape same mental shape yeah. sort of um so as I said like the whole night the summit I'd been so blinkered and closed off to emotion and then you basically get to the final like summit pyramid and you have to go around and traverse around the back of it and then pop up onto the ridge. And that final ridge is, I don't know, 20, 30 metres. And John, he went first. He went around the corner. I followed him. And as he went around it, I remember just seeing him throw his hands in the air and he just shouted down to me. He was like, Molly, I can see it. It's literally just there. And it was at that point where that emotion, like, suddenly kicked in. And I was slightly tearing up under my, under my goggles. And that's when you just feel everything like how much it's taken to get there there's three years of sponsorship hunting mm-hmm. the 18 months of horrendous training and the, the two months we'd already spent on the mountain and all that worry and and doubt just completely leaves you and you push your incredibly weak body those last kind of 30 meters and and finally get to the top and we got there at 4 45 in the morning so the sun was just rising on my left hand side You look out and you see the whole of the Himalayas. So as I stood in the summit, on my right was the whole of Nepal sprawled out. My left, the whole of Tibet sprawled out. Just like mountains as far as you'll possibly see. So, so special. Then you've got to turn around. Everyone just goes, <laughs> I climbed Everest. Well, yeah. like, so there's a lot, lot more people who've climbed Everest who haven't actually sort of lived to tell the tale. And I find climbing down terrifying, always have done. So how did you then suddenly psych yourself up for the return journey? Because you've done it, you know, so no, nobody really cares about the return because, yeah, you've got the flag. Uh, so the way back, talk to me about that. That's the hardest bit. Mm. And like statistically, if you're going to die on Everest, you're going to do it the way down, not the way up. Mm. You've been in the death zone for 12, 14 hours. You've seen five guys. You've seen five mm. dead people. <laughs> you're physically, mentally exhausted. Like that's the point. It'll be so easy to trip on your crampons, to not clip into one of those ropes properly. It'd be so, so easy to to die mm. on the way down. Um, so I always would get to the summit and just refocus and realise that, okay, that's done, but that's not the place to 
celebrate. That's not the place where success happens. Mm. It's happen- success happens when you're back at base camp or even when you're back home in the UK. Like you're only halfway on the summit. At what point did you think you could pop open the t- the, the pack of Pringles and the? <laughs> not till we got to base camp. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, maybe like on the north side, advanced base camp, because yeah. that's the point you take off your crampons and your climbing gear, and it's not serious anymore. It's just a hike back to base camp. But when just you're, a hike. Yeah, like another <laughs> twenty-two miles or something. But once you've got like safety gear off and you're not surrounded by crevasses and avalanche terrain, that just fear just lifts off your shoulders, and when it lifts you relax and you get very tired. Before I come to another question, sort of, I, yeah. I just want to touch on that thing that you're saying in the press. So obviously there's the huge crowds now. Like there's, I think there's, was there something like 600 people who summited last year. Yeah. Um, so you've also got the issue of, you know, the, the deaths, like 5% is a pretty high rate of attrition. Uh, and then also the environmental impact. Now, do you think it's now time for people to stop climbing Everest? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> and why? I think, well, firstly, I think the press has a really negative view of it. Mm-hmm. And they love a negative story. They love to talk about rubbish on Everest, about death to dead bodies, about mm-hmm. overcrowding. Um, in Nepal, it's not as bad as you think. Like, this year was awful. 2012, when I was there in Nepal, it was awful. But that's all to do with the small weather windows. Yeah. So we can only climb when the weather is, is perfect, when there's not the wind. Because usually the jet stream is buffering the summit. And the winds are like 100 miles an hour or more, so we can't get up there and climb. But when the jet stream lifts, you get a small weather window. In 2012, it was just a tiny one of like 24 hours, so everyone rushed up there at the same time. This year, it was exactly the same. Everyone rushed up there at the same time because it's not this big window of two weeks that they kind of hoped for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that causes all those problems. But the year before, the year before that, it wasn't any crowds like that. So you've, like, you've done the mountain. You've done the mountain twice. Are you done with the mountain? Uh, yeah, in terms of climbing mm-hmm. it, for sure. Yeah. Like, I've given so much of myself to it <laughs> over the last six, seven years. Um, and, like, I would never go back on it. Like, it's the most amazing experience. I've learned so much. Uh, but there's so much more out there now. And just last month, Molly conquered even more of what was out there after becoming the youngest woman to ski solo to the South Pole. What a legend. Coming up next week is the incredible Ed Jackson, a professional rugby player who was told he would never walk again after breaking his neck, only to summit Snowdon, one of the UK's highest mountains, less than a year later. I was trying to get my head above water, and if anyone's sort of been dunked in a pool before when you're kids, you know, there's that sort of panic moment. And then I just sort of felt sort of sunk back, staring at the surface. I remember thinking... I hope someone's seen this because I'm gonna, I could drown here. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull How to Be Superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats. Or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How to Be Superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House.